reading of our passage of scripture for the day. Which once again comes from 2 Timothy, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 26. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank, we're thankful for your people. And now as we come to receive the food of your word, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to receive this word and implant it deep in our hearts and souls and lives that it might bear fruit that leads to your glory and our good. Give us understanding. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we move into the end of this second chapter of 2 Timothy, <clears throat> don't forget where we've been so far. If you remember back months ago, uh, we started covering the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And this... Um, is the last of those three that we'll go through. And this is Paul's last letter, um, timeline-wise, as far as this is the last thing Paul wrote before he died that is recorded in Scripture. Um, in the pastoral epistles, we've been kind of like observers, watching over Timothy and Titus's shoulders as they've read letters from Paul, and Paul was directing his young disciples in how to handle the establishment and the oversight of the churches they were working with. First Timothy was Paul speaking into the specific situations in Ephesus where Timothy had been left in order to correct deficiencies and problems. And it was most specific, mostly specific doctrines and specific roles that were being addressed there in First Timothy. Then in Titus, Paul was directing Titus to go to the different towns on the island of Crete and appoint elders in each of the churches in those towns. And now here, in 2 Timothy, Paul is again directing Timothy, who is still in Ephesus, but it feels much more intimate and personal, uh, this second letter does, as Paul is in prison and is about to lose his earthly life and ministry. And it's all, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they've all been about what is going to benefit and build up the church. We've had a lot of um, things that would make us think about, maybe even challenge our ecclesiology, what we think, believe, and do about the church in our lives, what the Bible says about the church. So this has all been about the church. I love the description of the church that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3.15. Um, let's see, did we? Okay, mine's. I'm not hooked up here, so bear with me. Um, when we talk about the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This work that Paul is commissioning and equipping Timothy and Titus, but here Timothy specifically, what he's commissioning them to do is equipping the church, the individuals, and the group, and that's invaluable. We can't place a value on that. It's literally the care and feeding of the people that make up the household of God, and that's a really big deal. And here in 2 Timothy, Paul's focus 
is on direct instruction to his spiritual son, Timothy, to encourage Timothy to prepare to suffer well in this gospel ministry. To suffer well like Paul has, who was at the point of pouring out his life unto death. I posted on Facebook a couple weeks ago as a picture of Vody Bauckham that read, The message of 2 Timothy is this. Timothy, they are about to kill me for preaching the gospel. When they do, you preach the gospel until they kill you. And that pretty much sums it up. And through it all, Paul is calling on Timothy to engage and do what he, what Timothy is supposed to, to purify himself and pay attention to his conduct and his teaching and his ministry. And we'll see more on that specifically today. So let's start there in verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now, Paul has already given Timothy illustrations of how to, how to conduct himself as far as saying a good soldier, an athlete, a farmer. And he's done that to call Timothy to action. Here, he gives another illustration, and this is an interesting one. There's a lot to dig into here. He says, now, in a great house, there are vessels. And if you'll remember, we ended last week's passage with verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And what we said there was that the firm foundation and the seal referred to a building that God was building, and we said that that building was the church. Well, that reference here in the next verse still stands. Okay, So here, this great house in verse 20 is also the church. And that sounds lovely, beautiful, right? So this great house on this firm foundation with this seal upon it is the church. And in this great house, Paul says, there are vessels of gold and silver. Okay? And vessels of wood and clay. Well, that makes sense, right? Some of these vessels are for honorable use. Okay? And some are for dishonorable use. In the church. God's house. What's going on here? There's a lot more here than a cursory reading gives us. I've misunderstood this passage my whole life. And hopefully after today, I'd, we won't misunderstand it. And maybe you didn't, but I have. <laughs> so the tough work here for me was figuring out what Paul is saying to Timothy and what is he trying to communicate through this analogy. What do the gold and silver vessels, the wood and clay vessels, the honorable use and the dishonorable use all stand for? Well, let's start here. The gold and silver vessels are the ones for honorable use. So let's pair that up, which leaves the wood and the clay vessels to be used for what? Dishonorable purposes. Okay? So there's a word here that's not in the passage that I'm going to bring up that's going to be very important to the rest of this message. And the word is antithesis. Antithesis. Some of y'all maybe are just finishing your, your college semester and you had to have a thesis statement to something that you were writing, right? The, the kind of sums up the very purpose of the paper that you're writing. Well, antithesis, 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 is two things that stand against one another. If this is true, this can't be true. You with me? Okay. This means yes. I'm just messing with this. Just seeing if you're... Yeah. <clears throat> antithesis, right? Okay. So antithesis. If this is this, then it can't be that. If this is this, it can't be that. If this is this, then this can't be that. And if this is this, this can't be that. This is this, and this is this, but they're not each other. And they can't be each other. I'm belaboring a point, okay? Right. Exactly, Leon, exactly. So, can gold and silver vessels be used for dishonorable purposes? 
Not in the parallelism here. Can wood and clay vessels be used for honorable purposes? No. Okay? Stay with me. It is important to note the antithesis here. Silver and gold are not wood and clay. Honorable is not dishonorable. And all through this letter, there's been a juxtaposition, a contrast between good and bad. Good doctrine, bad doctrine. Good practices, bad practices. Good teachers, bad teachers. And that carries into this for sure. So looking at silver and gold vessels that are for honorable use and wood and clay vessels that are for dishonorable use, what is being conveyed here? If the great house is the church, and it is, what do these vessels stand for? Well, there's different thoughts. Okay, Some would say that they stand for different groups of believers. Some would say different members of the church. Some say it's specifically about teachers in the church, good teachers, false teachers. Some say it's believers and unbelievers. Some say it's doctrines, true and false. So which is it? Now listen, incredibly important principle here. One of the most important principles in biblical interpretation is to let the Bible interpret the Bible first and foremost. So I'm going to let John Stott show us what this looks like from some other scriptures. And I quote him here. To what is the apostle alluding by this metaphor? He says, watch this, there can be little doubt that the great house is God's house, the visible or professing church. But what are the vessels? The use of the term elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay, here's where we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. He says, uh, let me find my place again. Um, ba, ba, ba. But what, what are the vessels? The use of them elsewhere in the New Testament suggests that they stand not simply for members of the church, but for the church's teachers. For example... Jesus had said to Ananias about the newly converted Saul of Tarsus, He is a chosen instrument, same word as vessel, of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's in Acts 9.15. Years later, Stott says, Paul described himself and his fellow workers by a similar image when he wrote, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4.7. In these verses, instrument and vessel translate the same Greek word, skuos, as Paul is now using in his letter to Timothy. A skuos, S-K-E-S. S-K-E-U-O-S, was any kind of utensil, like a spatula. (laughs) Spatula city. Okay? End of quote. Now, I think this logic is sound and biblical. And those are just two examples, but there's more. And then Stott goes on to say this, which I think brings even more clarity. Quote again. From this usage, I think we would be justified in concluding that the two sets of vessels in the great house, gold and silver for noble use, wood and earthenware for ignoble, represent not genuine and spurious members of the church, but true and false teachers in the church. Paul is still, in fact, referring to the two sets of teachers he has contrasted in the previous paragraph, the authentic like Timothy and the bogus like Hymenaeus and Alexander. The only difference is that he changes the metaphor from good and bad workmen to noble and ignoble vessels, end of quote. So, here again, Stott shows that other places in the Bible, literally just a few verses before this letter, Paul is saying the same thing, just using a different language to communicate it. And if we're not careful, we miss the forest for the trees, especially in expository preaching. We take one little chunk and think that it stands alone. But it's connected to a thought pattern. It's connected to a flow of thought. It's connected to a context. And so you always emphasize the context first and you let the Bible interpret the Bible to tell us what this section is talking about. And if this section is in this section and this section is contrasting good and bad teachers, well, that's what this is doing. Okay? That's super important. So, don't miss the forest by focusing on one little tree. This little tree's got me really tripped up. Well, look, there's a whole big forest that can help us make sense of this one little tree. Okay? Um, This is not just a singular thought. It's in a context. So, Paul is showing Timothy and us the clear difference 
in true and false teachers. And he is showing, now watch this, he is showing that both are in the great house. Both are in the church. And the master, watch this, uses both for his purposes. What did I just say? I said the master uses both the gold and the silver and the wood and the clay, the honorable and the dishonorable. He uses them for his purposes. Hmm. He lets the wheat and the tares grow up together. And he sorts it out in the end, right? And you want to talk about the Bible interpreting the Bible... This picture of vessels here in 2 Timothy sounds a lot like Romans 9. And some of y'all are going, oh, no, not Romans 9. Yeah, Romans 9. (laughs) Romans 9, 19 to 24. Watch this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Man, that's crazy similar to this here in 2 Timothy. And it serves to show that God is not being ambushed. He's not being secretly infiltrated leading to a defeat. He is the master of the house. He either purchased or made these vessels himself for his purposes. And it will be evident what is honorable and what is not. More on that later. So what's our part in this? Because that is what Paul was about to tell Timothy and us. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Aha. So look at that. Therefore, there are vessels in this great house, silver, gold, wood, clay, honorable, dishonorable. Therefore... Since the master's building has vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use, since true and false teachers are in the mechanism, Timothy, your part is to do what? Try to be gold or silver? Change from wood or clay to precious metal? No, 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 no. That's not the point here. And it's impossible. Cats don't become dogs. Antithesis. The master has made or purchased these vessels for his own uses and purposes. The point is to do well what he has made you for. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. So, Timothy, you are a silver or a gold vessel. You were created, born again, Created by God, recreated by God for good works, Ephesians 2 tells us. So be clean. Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. And we'll see some specifics of that in the following verses. But here, Paul is making Timothy's work in response to all of this clear. And the work that Timothy is to do is cleanse yourself. The word literally means to purge. Clear out all the bad stuff. Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Anything that looks, smells, feels like the things that the dishonorable vessels are looking at, thinking, feeling, or doing, purge it from your life. Then he, you, we, will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If then, so then. If you are a vessel for honor, then cleanse yourself. So cleanse yourself, then you'll be useful. This is exactly what we were saying last week. Election calls us unto holiness. So God elects us, God calls us, God adopts us, 
And so we are to respond by grace-driven effort to cleanse ourselves and to be, to be holy like he is holy, like Aaron read this morning at the Lord's table. The call is for Timothy to purge his life of all the things that are not within the realm of what is honorable. So then he will be set apart as holy and as a precious metal, clean vessel, he will be available to God for use in what God wants to use him for. As a teacher in the church, that will be to teach the good sound doctrine for the good of the disciples of Jesus and for the glory of God. Be clean, be pure, be ready. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. So what does this look like? Verses 22 and 23. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. If you remember, if you were here last week, if you heard the message I said, Alistair Begg said, you can tell all you need to know about someone by what they're running from, what they're running to, and who they're running with. Well, this is that exactly. So, if you cleanse yourself, you'll be useful to God to use according to how he's designed you. So, and then follows what that cleansing looks like. So, flee, pursue, along with, have nothing to do with. What you're running from, what you're running to, and who you're running with. So first, flee youthful passions. Oh boy. Some of y'all are there. Some of you are not there yet. A lot of us have been there. Do you remember puberty? Everybody's like, puberty? (laughs) Yeah. Great day in the morning. What a mess. I mean, really. And I'm going to say that thing that older people say, your body's changing, right? Right? Chemicals are flowing, and things don't make sense anymore. You smell funny? Trust me, you do. It's not bad. It's funny. Your body's developing and doing weird things. You're like, just stop, man. But it's true. And there elicits in a lot of people who are in that stage youthful lusts. Even us older folks remember what what it was like to be youthfully lustful, don't we? A persistent, sometimes pervasive tendency to seek physical pleasure, especially that from sensual desires. How's that for a good, clean definition? Flee from that. In an effort to cleanse yourself, run. Don't toy with it. Run. Our culture is saturated in sensuality. And that's the nice way of putting it. And God says, run from it. Run. Don't entertain yourself with it. Or excuse it. Or try to overlook it. Or say it won't affect you. Run! Flee! And you're running away from that leads you to pursue instead the lovely four. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now that's something worth pursuing, right? By the way, both verbs, flee and pursue, are present tense active imperative verbs. That means do it now, and it's always now. You do it, and it's a command to do it. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Be running from the youthful lusts, running toward righteousness, that which is right and holy, the deeds that are right and holy. Also pursue faith, that which is in view of the unseen spiritual realm instead of just the seen sensual world. Pursue love, that which seeks the good of others instead of the good of oneself and does so in all situations regardless of how I feel. Well, I just don't love you anymore. False. You're not loving them anymore. True love doesn't say, well, I don't feel it anymore. True love loves in the midst of that. And peace. The state of contentment and cooperation with others that is free from contempt and conflict. Those are worthy pursuits, right? Flee and pursue. 
and do those things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, you're not alone in this fleeing and pursuing. What you're running from, what you're running to, who you're running with. You're running with others who want more of the same for you and for themselves and for each other. And these others are seeking the favor and help of the Lord, the sovereign God of the universe. And the fleer and the pursuer and those he runs with are pure in heart. And what did Jesus say about the pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And then Paul instructs Timothy to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You reckon Timothy's been in a few of these quarrels and conflicts? Because it just keeps coming up. He just says it over and over and over again. Has to, has to have been an issue there in Ephesus. How many times will he mention it? He'll mention it one more time in our passage today. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Back in 1 Timothy, Paul had talked about the teachers there majoring in the law, majoring in the Jewish law, and these weren't even Jewish people. They didn't know anything about the law. And they were also focusing on genealogies and other useless things. Well, it seems that those types of things are still going on there in Ephesus. And Paul doesn't say to try to reason with these dishonorable vessels, but instead to have nothing to do with them. They are foolish and ignorant controversies. Have nothing to do with them. Separate yourselves from them. Don't run to them. Run from them. They aren't righteousness. They aren't faith, love, or peace. Have nothing to do with them. And again, the major reasoning is that they do what? They breed quarrels. They cause people to fuss with each other, and that's not profitable. We're seeking peace. We're not to seek being right. And like we've seen before, this striving leads to the harm and the ruin of those who hear the strivings and the quarrels. So have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. Flee. Pursue with those. Have nothing to do with them. This is what it looks like to cleanse oneself in order to be a useful, ready, honorable vessel for the Lord to use. And then what does that using look like? We're going to look at verse 24 and the first part of 25, and then we'll finish with a goal for that using. So 24 and then 25a. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Stop there. The honorable vessel of the Lord is to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies leading to quarrels, but is told specifically not quarrelsome as the servant of the Lord. The Lord is not, the Lord is not, dare I say, the Lord is not going to send His servant into a quarrel. You're not doing the work of the Lord there. Instead, the Lord demands that His servants be kind to everyone. Kind means to be meeting needs and to help in times of lack. It's kind to say hello to somebody with a flat tire on the side of the road. No. Is it kind to offer somebody who is standing in the rain a drink of water? It's nice, but it's not kind. Give the man an umbrella. Stop and help him change the tire. That's kindness. Meeting needs in a time when this is what you need. And and we're commanded here to be kind to everyone. The Lord's servant cannot quarrel and be kind. Also, the Lord's servant is to be able to teach. And there's a difference, you see, between teaching and quarreling. The spirit and tone are different for sure. There's also a difference in the process. Quarreling is someone wanting to be right, asserting their opinion or their truth in order to be right. You're wrong, I'm right. You're wrong, I'm right. Teaching is wanting everyone to know what is right. To teach is to instruct and to help along. The Lord's servant is also... To patiently endure evil. Ooh, that's a tough one. 
The truth is that those we deal with, both believers and unbelievers, listen to me, will sin against us. That's going to happen. They will speak evil of us and do evil against us. It will happen. Don't be shocked. Don't be knocked off your horse over something like that. It's going to happen. So, then should we gripe and moan and decry this injustice and just abandon them all to their evil, selfish ways? Because, I mean, they shouldn't mistreat me. But, um, I read about a guy named Jesus in a book called the Bible who is my Lord my master, my model. And did not he himself endure evil at the hands of religious men? Government men? Crowd men? His closest friends men? Didn't he? And at what point do you ever see him fighting for his rights? At what point do you ever see him complaining about the whole deal? Never. Did he accuse his accusers? No, he even prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) The kind, teaching servant of the Lord sees and experiences evil... And like their Lord, they patiently endure it. Patiently endure is one Greek word, which is anex ikakos. And it means to patiently endure. Hmm. Well, okay then. At least you heard a cool Greek word today. Moms, you're welcome. There's your Mother's Day gift. It is anex ikakos. Just making sure we're not surprised or overly frustrated by evil in our world and in our lives and even in the church from others. It's your lot, church. This is what you're called to. And you're called to patiently endure it. Can you pray that God will take it away? You can. Three times I pleaded with them that this rotten, evil, malicious thing would be taken from me. And three times he said, no. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will then most gladly boast about my weakness so that the power and the glory of God can be seen through me as I patiently endure whatever thorn comes my way, even if it means evil. Even if it means the sins of God's people. You endure it for the sake of God's elect. You love people who sin against you. You pray for them. Maybe you try to teach them and encourage them. Well, I ain't talking to them. They get on my nerves. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And listen, you can't do that. But the Holy Spirit of God in you, oh yeah. He can do that. Grace-driven effort. Anexikakas. Stop now. And then in the first part of verse 25, the Lord's servant, kind, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil, is also to correct his opponents with gentleness. You're like, well, you said we shouldn't argue. This is not arguing. This is not quarreling. This feels like the logical outcome of teaching, doesn't it? Let me teach you. Not punish you. Let me instruct you, not belittle you. Let me draw you near to myself, not cast you off. And in the end, even his opponents get corrected with gentleness. Correction is the desired outcome, not self justification or the in your face moment. I told him, I showed him. That's not the goal here. Correction. It's like telling our kids to stop it. Or go to your room. And they're like, all right. Ninth grade. 
speaking of puberty, <laughs> we had a teacher this first year, and he was weak, and we smelled it in the water. <laughs> and we were mean to this man. He's got his Ph.D., and he's teaching still by the grace of God. And we, we did a lot of bad things. We said a lot of bad things. We, uh, y'all ever lick your fingers and rub it on the metal on the desk and it hums? Anybody ever do that? Figure that out somewhere. You need to find it. So what you you lick your fingers, and there's a metal rack that holds your books underneath, underneath your seat, and it goes, it's awesome. And when you get a whole class full of students doing it, it's really awesome. Trust me, I know, because we did it to this guy. He literally threw down his chalk and ran out the door crying. That's true. I was a mean person. That's still pretty cool, though. But anyway, one day, seriously, seriously, one day I'm sitting at my desk, and I turn and put my arm on the desk of the girl behind me, and this man who we've tortured all year long said, Jason, to the office! And I'm like, and he said, you know what you did. So I get up and I start walking out when my good friend said, I don't think he needs to go by himself. Well, you go too then. So we walk out. And we walk up to the office and we go into the vice principal's office. And the vice principal says, what did you do? I said, honest to goodness, I have no idea. He said, come on. And my friend said, really? Nothing was going on. I said, I put my arm on the girl behind me's desk, just turning in my seat. And he said, go to the office. I didn't know what, I still don't know what I did. All these years later. Is that teaching? That's just in anger, busting out. And he obviously thought I did something. But I didn't know, and I'm clueless. So I got to file the lunch cards and then go back to class after in the next class. The point is this. Don't just say stop it. Don't just say quit. Don't just blow up. Teach. Instruct. Don't jump on the couch. Couches aren't made for jumping. You're supposed to sit on them. Oh. Okay. Don't put your face in your plate. you got a fork to eat with. Don't do that. Don't show me how the piggies eat. <laughs> the goal is correction. Correction is the desired outcome. Stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. This is what is wrong. This is what is right. This is bad doctrine. This is good doctrine. And that correction is with gentleness, which is the word meekness, which means strength under complete control. You ever lose your patience trying to teach somebody something? Just forget it, I'll do it. That's not meekness. Meekness is I could wring your neck right now, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to show you how to do this, okay? (laughs) Meekness, strength under complete control. There is a sense of control in this teaching and correction, not unhinged fury or loss of temper. Why? 25b and verse 26. Watch this. Wow. God, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What a couple sentences that is. Why do and be all these things and characteristics? Why purify ourselves? Why run from some things running to others and running with people who, who are pursuing the right thing? Why? Why teach and correct with gentleness? Why? Because our goal, our desire, our passion is to see people repent. Because repentance is to the glory of God. We want to see people, believers and unbelievers, to change the way they think and turn from their wrong for their good and for the glory of God. So Timothy, be kind. Teach. Patiently endure evil. Correct with gentleness because you never know what God will do. But you can turn people off. By fussing and swarping and shaking your fist and exerting yourself. You can push people away that way real easily. God may perhaps grant your opponents, those doing evil against you, those who disagree with you, He just might grant them repentance. And the word repentance means a change of mind. And who determines whether somebody changes their mind or not? 
God may perhaps grant them repentance. Now, isn't that interesting? You may just prove them wrong, Timothy, and they may say, you know what, you're right, Timothy. You're awesome. You're always right, Timothy. I'm stupid. I'm a dummy. No, that, that, that doesn't happen. God may perhaps grant them repentance. No, they can't repent unless God grants it. And I'm not reading too much into this. That's literally what it says. Because, especially the unregenerated mind, is unable to change itself. God has to give new life and the ability to think differently. And in His sovereignty, God uses His teaching servant to give new information and then gives the recipient of that information a new heart and a new mind to process that information and even the servant He sent it through so that he is to lead, which is to lead to a knowledge of the truth. God grants the repentance, which leads to a knowledge of the truth. And then what? And they may come to their senses, if God grants them repentance, which they will, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Wow, so much right there. The kind, gentle, teaching servant of God patiently endures the evil of and the evil man. God grants that man repentance, which leads to a knowledge of the truth, and the evil man comes to their senses. They may come to their senses is one Greek word, and it means to curb the controlling influence of inordinate emotions or desires and therefore become reasonable. It literally means to get self-control. Now note that, that fits so well here, because once they come to their senses, once they get self-control, which they have before, then they escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. These folks weren't capable of self-control before. They were externally controlled by the devil, caught in his snare and held captive to do his will. Unbelievers are held captive by the devil to do his will. And if God grants them repentance, then they get self-control. Maybe you're sitting here and you're not a believer. You're like, don't tell me. I am telling you because I love you. You don't have self-control as an unbeliever because... You're held captive by the devil to do his will. That is the plight, that is the story of somebody who has not been regenerated. They are not their own Lord and Master. They're held captive by their master, the devil, who is making them do his will. Whew. Prisoners forced to do the will of the devil. It takes God granting repentance to even start this process. That's my point here. And our goal, our desire in all of this is that the dishonorable becomes honorable. Either through rebirth and salvation or maybe it's a believer. For them it's through corrected doctrine that leads to the hearer walking in godliness and holiness, running from something and running to something in their self-control. So we obey the Lord, we teach and correct with gentleness, and we watch and see what God does. And we watch and see what the will of the Lord is as He carries it out in and through our obedience, their conversion, their turning, and their adopting into their lives the self-control that He's given them and making the right choices to run from, run to, and run with. But we obey the Lord, teach, and correct with gentleness because that's what good servants do. That's how honorable vessels are used in the passage. So, we turn our attention to application from this passage today. Four A's. We're, we're so good. We're not even triple A. We're quadruple A. Yeah. Antithesis is number one. Imagine that. Arrange, which was my greatest reach. I'll explain that when I get there. Argue and Almighty. 
antithesis, arrange, argue, and almighty. Antithesis. Antithesis. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Honorable is not dishonorable and dishonorable is not honorable. Righteousness is not sin and sin is not righteousness. Good is not evil and evil is not good. Tell that to them. Because right now, they, the culture, are saying, no, 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 no. There are special cases. There are exceptions. There are a lot of yeah, buts. Or that's true if this. But in my case, it's not true. Our culture has lost the concept of antithesis. And what is incredibly disturbing to me is that has crept into the church. We've lost the concept of right and wrong. You say, oh, come on, you're being overly dramatic. I'm not. We can come up with exceptions and explanations for every form of evil and call it good and call it loving people, accepting people, And sin is sin. Righteousness is righteousness. And they are not the same. R.C. Sproul says this, The Christian ethic is based on an antithesis between what is and what ought to be. We view the world as fallen. An analysis of fallen human behavior describes what is normal to the abnormal situation of human corruption. God calls us out of the indicative by His imperative. That's a great line, by the way. Ours is a call to nonconformity, to a transforming ethic that shatters the status quo. The church is not the world and is not to be like the world. And is not to accept the things that the world accepts. Is not to call good what the world calls good. And fill in the blank. Pick pick whatever you want to pick to put in there. We've got a buffet of things to pick from. A fully stocked, ever-increasing, never-ending buffet of things that the culture is saying, no, this is okay. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. And there is honorable and there is dishonorable. There is sin and there is righteousness. And we fight for that. You're like, oh, you're talking about fighting. Yes. We fight ourselves. We fight with each other. Sometimes we go toe-to-toe with one another. Because we love each other and we teach with gentleness. We'll get to that in a minute. And we call sin, sin. And we call people to repent of that sin. And I promise you, your sins are no better than other people's sins. They need repented of as well. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, And sweet for bitter. I didn't. I I had to question Mark by this passage, but I I think we've got to go there. Psalm eleven. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, "Flee like a bird to your mountain"? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. 
the upright shall behold his face. Well, that's just mean. Is it? We are to hate evil. Not nurture it, not be entertained by it, not sneak and like it here and there. We're to hate it. Did I just say we're to hate evil people? Not my job. That's the Lord's job. We're to patiently teach and encourage them to repent because the Lord hates evil. And his justice is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And there is a saved person and an unsaved person. And it is the Lord who tests that. The Lord's eyelids who discern that. So flee from the wrath to come because there is a wrath coming. We're not all going to make it finally at the top of the mountain. It's not going to happen. Stop the accommodating and start the antithesis. And know your role in that. And don't call evil good and don't call good evil. Antithesis. I could look at Linger there, Bob, but we're going to stop. So antithesis, now arrange. Now this is my hardest A to find, okay? I just couldn't. I'm talking about cleansing, how to arrange your life. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Cleanse yourself, flee youthful lusts, avoid quarrels, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. With the mindset of antithesis, there are things we should do and there are things we should not do. And don't justify doing something you shouldn't do by saying, well, it might work out okay. Or it really doesn't matter. It matters. And it's not a righteous deed that you're supposed to be pursuing. It's unrighteous. Cleanse yourself. Run from the wrong things. Run to the right things. These are things to do. These are things not to do. So do the things you're supposed to do and don't do the things you shouldn't do. Is that an oversimplification? No. That's how you arrange your life. Is this righteous? No. Then don't pursue it. Is this going to breed a quarrel? Yes. Then don't pursue it. Avoid it. Is this holy? Is this leading me to be holy like God is holy? No. Then run from it. Don't do it. Because it's sin. And you don't harbor, you don't play with sin because it's cancerous. And you're sitting on the shelf and God's not going to use an unclean vessel. Now he can talk through a donkey if he wants to. But my job here, my goal, my part in this is, Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, peace, and love with those who call on the Lord from a clear mind and a sound heart and a pure heart. I'd find it eventually. I've got a part to play in this. And it's to arrange my life so that I am cleansing myself of evil. A.W. Tozer said, you can be sure... The Holy Spirit never enters a man and lets him live like the world. I'll say one more time what Herb Hodges said. If you call yourself a believer and you can unchecked sin without God taking you behind the woodshed and beating the hell out of you, you're deceiving yourself. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He convicts us of sin. And you cannot sin and not be miserable if the Holy Spirit is in you. You can't do it. Arrange your life so that you're pursuing the things that lead to holiness. By the way, you can't do that without antithesis. This is holy, this is not. Antithesis, arrange, argue. Don't argue. That's not completely a true statement. Don't quarrel. Quarrel didn't start with A. Don't quarrel, teach. 
Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Don't run into controversies that breed quarrels. Teach and correct with gentleness and love. That's how we engage. That's how we argue. And I, there is a case for arguing. Arguing just means, here's, I'm going to lay a case out before you. Here's my argument. That's not a quarrel. That's a case. Present your case, argue well, but do it in a teaching manner, in a loving manner, in a patient manner, not in a quarreling, shaking your fist, you idiot kind of way. We've, we've had that application point two times over the last few weeks, but again, I can't get past it. It just keeps coming up. Antithesis, arrange, argue, finally, finally, almighty. In verses 20 to 26, thankfully, joyfully, rejoicingly, we see an almighty God. An almighty God who is building his house on a sure foundation with his seal set upon it. And in that house, there are honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels. There's precious metal, silver and gold. There's wood and clay. And the almighty God has designed those vessels and the almighty God is using those vessels for his purposes. We also saw that God may grant repentance to some. God might do that. God may. It's not some guy wising up and, oh, okay, I figured this out. It's not the way it works, y'all. God may. God may. You do what you do. Be obedient because God may grant them repentance. Even the dishonorable vessels. Guess what? We were all dishonorable at one time. We were all walking in sin. And he literally changed our composition. We were reborn to a living hope. We were given a new heart. The heart of stone was taken out and the heart of flesh was put in. And he wrote his law on our hearts and our minds. He did that. And if he doesn't do that, it doesn't get done. He's almighty. He is sovereign over everything. Including repentance. Including the honorable and the dishonorable vessels. And oh, that threatens our autonomy. And that threatens our... Anonymity and that threatens ourself. It absolutely does. Because we're not the ones who are supposed to get the glory anyway. The Almighty God is the one who gets the glory. Or it's misspent, it's misdirected. I can't help but put it this way in an antithetical way either He's Almighty or He's not. Amen. And He is. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. What if God? What if he is almighty? What if he is sovereign? What if the Almighty God calls us all to repentance? Because he does. What if the Almighty God would grant us repentance today? Let's pray.
Father, I pray that we would be people, individually and corporately, who recognize your sovereignty and celebrate it. God, I pray that we would be people who sit on the shelf, eager and ready, having cleansed ourselves so that we might be vessels of honor ready for your use, not to advance our agenda, not to get what we want only, but God, for your glory to be displayed through us as you pour yourself out through us. In your house, God, there are vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use. Help us as your people to cleanse ourselves so that we might be vessels for honorable use. And God, if there be one at the sound of my voice who has not repented, God, I pray through the power of your spirit you would grant them repentance and they would come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been held by him to do his will. Grant them repentance and faith that they might run to you and see Jesus as the source and giver of their salvation because he laid his life down. His flesh was torn. His blood was poured out. He was dead, buried, and resurrected and now sits enthroned in heaven. May they put their faith in him so that you might get glory in it all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? It's a good one. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can, though.